Amen, church. You can go and have a seat. It's beautiful to hear your voices proclaim uh, the good news of the finished work of Jesus this morning. We get to hear more about that as you open your copy of God's Word up to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. We are, we've been going through the Gospel of Matthew for some time, and we finally made it through chapter 5. It took, took a minute, but we're beginning chapter 6. And as we do, we're beginning a new section in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Jesus has just been for the last little bit talking about our relationship to the law, right? And what that looks like in his kingdom. And now he's shifting a little bit. And now he's going to talk about what it looks like for citizens in the kingdom and how we relate to religious practices, right? And he's going to do this specifically through talking about uh, giving, specifically giving to the poor and prayer and fasting. So let's read. Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. This is the word of the Lord. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for revealing yourself to us, and we need everything that you have to say to us. And what you are talking to us about this morning is an area of much confusion, and we can miss it in so many ways. And so we thank you for clarifying what, it, what you have given us uh, in the things that you call us to do. So Lord, I pray you help us to see clearly. I pray that you would soften our hearts, give us open ears and eyes, and that your spirit would uh, use your word for the sake of your people this morning and work in us what we need to better honor and glorify you. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so we've got this shift. We're going through the Sermon on the Mount where we're seeing Jesus proclaim the kingdom, proclaim the kingdom of heaven, and now we're getting to, to watch him do that through this Sermon on the Mount. We've had a number of different things. He started with the Beatitudes that talked about who these citizens of the kingdom are. Who, who are these people? What do they look like? And talked a little bit about our relationship to the world and being salt and light. Then he moved on to this reality of, of how we relate to the law and what true righteousness looks like, and how Christ has provided that for us, and how in providing it for us, he calls us to pursue it in our lives. So now we have this shift, right? And he's going to tackle this other area. And it's an area, I think, that is a struggle for a lot of us, right? Uh, religion, essentially, right? The, the, the things that we do, the things that we're called to do that are religious in nature, right? We, we think of lots of good things to do, but there are some things that we connect with that word specifically, right? These are religious activities. And the three that Jesus talks about here were very, um, very highly valued by the Jews at his time. Uh, fasting, giving of alms, or giving to the poor, and prayer were all kind of seen as, as three of the main things that, they were, that a pious Jew would participate in. And so Jesus is using these as examples, much as he used the laws he used previously to, to draw out the principle of what are religious practices for, what it does and what it doesn't do, and to clarify it for us. And we need this, right? If you think back about your life and think about the, you know, think about the things we do, right? So there's this giving, prayer, and fasting, but we could add other things, right? When we think about you know, piety, right? Or, or the things that we do that are religious in nature. You know, think about reading your Bible, your, your quiet time. You know, prayer is probably factored in there. You know, maybe it's your service to the church or the community, right? You can think of all these different things. And I imagine if you kind of think back over your life, the way you think about them has probably shifted and moved around a little bit. It has for me, significantly. There have been times when I thought, just kind of wondered what the point of some of them is. Like, why are we even doing this? This doesn't seem like it does anything, right? I don't feel anything. It doesn't seem to be accomplishing anything. And then there's other times I felt them like this incredibly overbearing weight. Like, like if I was only doing them better, then, then this would get fixed, or, or, or then this would be better, or then 
this wouldn't be happening to me, right? And there's been all these different movements of trying to understand, right, what are these things? Why do I do them? What are they for? All this kind of stuff. Have you guys felt that throughout your Christian life? Is what, what's the point of some of this stuff? I hope I'm not the only one, right? Well, this is common, right? To wonder, does this stuff matter? Is it okay if I don't feel a lot when I do it? Is it doing anything? Is it accomplishing anything? Right? We feel like we should do them, but something oftentimes feels a little bit off, not quite right. And that makes sense, because according to this passage, it's very easy for us to get off track in the way that we practice these things, in the way that we think about them. Extremely easy. In fact, it's very natural for us to do. We're more likely to do them wrong than we are to do them right. And as Jesus engages us with this, right, he doesn't correct the actions themselves. This is a little different than what he just did when he was talking about the law. Right? What has gone on with the law, the law had been minimized. And he was saying the, the way that you guys are talking about righteousness has been diluted. It's been watered down. Right? So the very actions you're describing are wrong. He doesn't do this with this. He doesn't correct giving to the poor. He doesn't correct praying. He doesn't say you shouldn't fast. He doesn't change anything about the things themselves. But what he goes to is the reasons behind them, the motivations. What are you doing those things for? It's not the things themselves, but how are you using them? What are you trying to accomplish with them? That's where the problem lies here. This is where we get lost and we get messed up when it comes to these things. What we do with them and what we expect from them often does not line up with the reality of why God gives them to us and what they're actually intended for. Right? And because of this, sometimes we're tempted to just get rid of this stuff altogether, right? And we call it religion in a derogatory sense, right? And say, oh, Christianity is a, it's just a relationship. Religion's all that other stuff, right? But I think that's kind of a throwing the baby out with the bathwater kind of thing. We're overcorrecting, or we're trying to fix the problem, but we're missing it, right? I, I think it misses the problem that Jesus is actually getting to here. And other times we feel just crushed by it, right? I can never do enough. I can never pray enough. I can never read enough. I can never do these things enough. And we feel weighed down and burdened. And we're bad Christians because of this. And there's all sorts of other ways we can get it wrong. But what makes this part, what makes this hard? What makes it difficult to, to do well, to, to do rightly the way that God's designed it? All right, so... The problem is hypocrisy. The problem is hypocrisy, but we need to flush that out, right? It, again, it's not the actions themselves. It's how we relate to them. Religion, religious action is not the problem. It's not that doing religious practices that God has given us is somehow cold and sterile and doesn't line up with having a relationship with God. That's not it. <laughs> In fact, these things are actually given to us for our relationship with God, as we're going to see. Right? But the problem is that we try to use them for things that they are not intended. Right? So when Jesus describes the way these are misused, he really does it in two ways. He describes how they do it, and then he gives like, this characterization. Right? He says, be careful not to do these things in front of men in order to be seen by them. Right? That's the first problem, right? Performative. Performative. You are doing these practices, these things that God has given to you, you're not doing them primarily before him. You're doing them primarily before men and for the response that you get from them. And this leads to the characterization of, of hypocrite, right? That's what he calls the people who do this sort of thing. Now, hypocrite, the, the original word was essentially the word for like an actor. It was the word for somebody who plays a part, plays a role in a drama. It wasn't an inherently negative word. But in Matthew, and what Jesus uses, it's always used in a negative context, Right? It's used to refer to these people who are play-acting, who have an appearance of righteousness, have an appearance of holiness on the outside. But all that really does is veil sin and wickedness and evil on the inside. They're play-acting. They're playing a role. They're portraying themselves as holy and righteous. 
But the reality is that they're not, no matter what it looks like on the surface. So if the problem with worship, with these religious activities, for lack of a better way to put it, is the answer is not to get rid of religion. The answer is to deal with the heart that misuses it. Right? It's not the things, the things that God calls us to that are good, that are broken. It's our flesh. It's the sin in our hearts that want to use them in ways that God does not intend. Right? We see something similar to this in, in the Old Testament. Right? When you get into the prophets in the Old Testament, there's lots of calling out of Israel for their sacrifices. And God's saying things like, I don't want your sacrifices. I don't want your offerings. Don't bring that stuff here. Now, the problem was not that Israel's making sacrifices and offerings. They were supposed to do that. But in the context, they had neglected all sorts of other things that they were meant to do, things that were more significant and more important, and they were using sacrifices and offerings as a way to essentially cover up and make up for the things that they weren't doing, right? So they had taken what God had given them for a good purpose, and they were using it to justify their evil and their wickedness. And that's why they were condemned for it. God wasn't saying the things he gave them were wrong. It was the way that they were using them. They were using them to justify themselves and their own wickedness and evil. So the answer is not to get rid of religion or or redesign it, but to stop abusing it and misusing it. That's where we need to go. Rightly used, rightly exercised, our religious life, our, our piety, what it should do is it should be good for our neighbor and it should be glorifying to God. Right? That's how it should play out when it's exercised rightly. That's the way God designed it. But when it's corrupted by our flesh and when it's misused and misdirected, we end up appropriating both the good that's supposed to come to our neighbor and the glory that's supposed to go to God and we try to use it and redirect it to us. Right? We try to use religion not to do good to our neighbor, but to get good for ourselves. And not to see God glorified, but to see ourselves exalted. Right? We are using the things that God has given for the wrong purposes. The good that is meant to go to our neighbor and the glory that is meant to go to God. We are trying to use enough mirrors to reflect it back so it comes to us. The first thing we need to realize is that this is incredibly easy to do. You can tell by the way Jesus talks about it in this passage. He starts off by saying, be careful or beware. That word is, is, the idea is to stand your guard because there's an imminent danger and an imminent threat. So you need to be ready to deal with this danger that's there. So Jesus is not describing something that just, you know, this may pop up every once in a while. This is something that, that lurks just waiting for us to fall into it. All right, this is common. And so we have to be wary. It's not saying it's something that might happen, but it's a danger that constantly is there, ready for us to slip into. So it needs awareness and vigilance. We need to recognize that this can happen and how it happens so that we can be on our guard. So what is it that we're guarding against? How, How do we do that? What we're guarding against is a performative, performative religion designed to win favor or approval with people. Now, the interesting thing is, is that we have to look at this in contrast to something Jesus said earlier in this sermon. Because at first it seems to be directly, contra- directly contradictory. If we go back in Matthew 5, verses 13 through 16, Jesus says this, You are the salt of the earth. If salt has lost its taste, how shall the saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Right? So, in the passage we have today, Jesus says, Hey, do not do these things before men to be seen by them, right? Do it in private, do it in secret. But then just the last chapter, we have him saying, let your light shine so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. How do we reconcile those two things? They sound like they don't work together, don't they? 
Well, the point is, it's not wrong to be seen doing good, right? In fact, it's kind of inevitable. If you're doing good towards others, it's going to be seen on some level. We cannot be totally anonymous. It's, it's impossible if we're going to care for people. The only way to be totally anonymous about it would be to not do it. So that's going to happen. The point is, why are you doing it? When you are truly pursuing what God has for you, you're not doing it in order to be seen, in order to be recognized, in order to be glorified. Like, man, look at that guy. So holy. Knocking it out. Right? When you are pursuing that, you're sinning. Right? When you are pursuing loving your neighbor and glorifying God, and it is just noticed, that is what is supposed to happen. Right? Because then the glory doesn't go to you, it goes to God. When we are pursuing men's approval through, do, through our righteousness, we are robbing God of glory. When we are glorifying God by giving of ourselves to other people and bearing witness to him, and people happen to notice it, what ends up happening is the glory doesn't tend to flow to us. It, it tends to bounce off us and go to him where it belongs. So that's the distinction. If we, the way we live should be seen in the world, and it should be noticeable. Scripture talks about how we should be always ready to give a reason for the hope that lies within us. Well, that verse presupposes the fact that something is noticed in us, that you have a hope in the first place that people see, right? So Christians should be distinct. We should be salt and light for the good of our neighbors. If we look just like the world and there's nothing distinguishing about us, we're not doing what we're called to either. But if we are play-acting at being righteous to somehow climb some ladder and to be thought well of, we're not pursuing righteousness at all. It's what the Pharisees did. It's this hypocrisy. It's this play-acting to gain something from other people. So it's not wrong to be seen doing good. It is wrong to do good in order to be seen. When we're just aiming to do good to others and to glorify God, it, it leads them not to see you, but to really to see through you and look to the God who works in you and is doing those things through you. That's what we want to happen. In the verse about being the light of the world, it says they see your good works, and, and what do they do? They glorify your Father in heaven, right? So our goal is not when we are doing the thing that God calls us to. Our goal is really not to evoke a certain reaction from other people. We are trying to be faithful to what God has called us to do. And when we do that, he causes the people who see it to see him and glorify him. That's his business, right? We don't need to try to drum up some kind of platform and drum up some kind of reaction. That is his business. Our business is to engage the things that he has given us in the way that he has given them to us. For those ends, right? When you do good, right? Whether it's, you know, in our case, giving to the poor. When you do that in order to acquire what it can do for you, who does it glorify? Does that glorify God? No, it glorifies ourselves. Whose good are you seeking when you do that? Are you actually seeking the good of the person you're helping? No, you're using them as a launching pad. You're using them as leverage, for your own spiritual mountain climbing, your own portrayal of yourself that you want others to see. Now, we can do this intentionally, right? Um, we can, you know, we can be very, do this very consciously, do it very strategically and plan. Like, hey, if I do this thing in this way, people will see it and people will like it. This will probably work out good for me. This will work out good for my reputation. That happens sometimes, right? Sometimes it, it can sound, you know, even innocuous, right? We can, we can want to build a platform so that more people see us and more people are exposed to what we do. Right? We can try to project righteousness. We can do these things on purpose, but I think more often it happens unintentionally and subtly. It kind of creeps in. We can start from a place of, of genuinely wanting to do good. And I think about this from, from just in my own life and, and preaching the gospel, Right? I want to preach the gospel. I want people to hear the gospel. I want people to know that there's forgiveness for sinners in Jesus Christ. And I want as many people to know that as possible. But it would be very easy to, make, to start there and for this little twist to happen. Like, okay, I want a lot of people to hear the gospel, so I need a bigger voice. 
All right, so what can I do to get louder, to get where more people can hear me, to get where more people can see me? And that starts shaping what I talk about and what I preach and what I proclaim. And it becomes not anymore about proclaiming the gospel that glorifies God, but now it's suddenly become about me building a brand. In word, you know, theoretically, to preach more of the gospel. But I've lost myself in that turn. I've done what we're talking about here, and I just slipped into it from starting from a very genuine place. And of course, this doesn't just apply to a pastor or somebody who talks, right? We all have ways that we can do this in our various vocations and our various callings, the, the circles that we're in. It's very easy to talk ourselves into, hey, if I can build myself up here, I can do more good in the long run, right? And then that ends up starting to be what we pursue. And we end up cutting ourselves off at the knees. And this isn't just outward facing with other people either, right? Sometimes this happens with us. Sometimes the, the approval we're trying to win is my own. After Jesus talks about doing these things to be seen by men, he talks about not letting your left hand know what your right hand is doing. There's another danger here, right? It may not be that you're trying to build yourself up with other people, but it may be that you are trying to make yourself okay. That you are trying to find something in yourself that you can look at for your standing before God, for the way God looks at you. And instead of looking to Christ where we ought to look, that you want to find a way to see it in yourself, right? This may even be the more common one, right? Because we, we, want, we want to feel righteous. We want to feel like we've done something so badly, right? And so we can keep this little scorecard, oh yeah, I helped out so-and-so. I helped so-and-so move. You know, I've read my Bible every day for this. I've read the Bible through in a year, 15 years running. Like, you pick your thing, right? You just pick stuff, and you start adding up the points. All right, you're like, okay, I've got, I've got some stuff to hang my hat on. That is deadly. That is deadly self-righteousness. And God has not called us to obedience. God has not called us to things like giving to the poor and to prayer and fasting for us to build our own self-righteousness. That is the opposite of what it's for. We have no self-righteousness. Anything that good that comes in us is something that God has worked in us. Right? When we look to ourselves, all it should do is drive us to Christ and his perfect righteousness because we have no righteousness of our own. And don't care how many checklist boxes you can make and check off every day. The only righteousness that you have that avails anything is the righteousness you have in Christ. I think Paul captured this really beautifully in 1 Corinthians 4. The Corinthian church, after Paul was there and he left, there were other teachers who came in and uh, they tended to run Paul down for the sake of their own platform and their own ministry. And Paul, when he was writing back, he talked a little bit about some of that. And this is, that's kind of the background of this passage. And this is what Paul says. He says, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. Moreover, it's required of stewards that they would be found faithful. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time before the Lord comes who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. What Paul's saying, right, there's these rumors going on about who Paul is and what he does and everything. And what he's saying is like, look, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what you think of me. Like, I didn't come and preach the gospel to you so that you would think well of me, right? Think what you want, right? And you know what? I don't even preach the gospel to think well of myself. As far as I know, I've been above board and how I've done it, everything. But that doesn't even matter, right? What I think of myself doesn't even matter, the only opinion, the only approval that's worth anything is the approval of God himself. And we cannot get that 
through the way that we perform anything he gives us, right? We can't. And so Paul had come to realize something that we all have to come to realize, right? We are called to love and give ourselves for other people, not to get something out of them, because anything we could get out of them, and usually the biggest thing we want to get out of people is their approval, their adoration, the glory that comes with that. Even if we get that out of them, what does it matter? What does it matter at the end of the day? It doesn't. We are not going to be acquitted or judged based on what people think about us. We're going to be judged by the holy God of the universe on whether we are in Christ or not. And that's it. So you don't have to chase other people's approval. Love them. Give yourself for them. Seek their good because you don't need anything from them. Because if you are in Christ, you have the smile of God. He loves you. You are his. Nothing will take you away from him. It doesn't matter if the whole world hates you and despises you. Who cares what the peasants think if the king has given you his favor? It does not matter. You know, our world, um, man, we have so many avenues to do this with, right? This is not anything new. As Ecclesiastes says, there's nothing new under the sun. We never encounter brand new things, right? But living in the information age that we do, we all have abilities to do this in ways that we never did, right? In a lot of ways, social media platforms are like, they're personal branding marketing pages, right? Like you get to go on there, you create and curate this picture of yourself. You choose what you show, how you show it. This is not to say that these things are evil. You can, you can use them well. I'm not trying to do any of that, right? But I'm just trying to say they can be an incredible avenue for this, right? You can portray yourself however you want. And then you can literally count how effective you're being. This many people saw this. This many people like this. My numbers are going up, right? This can be incredibly toxic if you are not aware of it, right? You don't have to have social media to do this, but this is just one example in our culture where we have a great opportunity to lean into it, right? And we need to be aware of how we use things like that. Right? When you're posting, right? When you're deciding what to put and when to put it, what are, what are you trying to accomplish? Are you trying to do good for the people who are going to see this? Are you trying to glorify God? Or are you trying to project something about yourself? These are things we need to ask, not just about social media, but about the way we move through our lives and the way we do all sorts of different things. Are you trying to do good to others or get a certain response out of them? So what ultimately ends up happening when we use these different things God has called us to, things like giving to the poor, things like praying, things like fasting, things like reading our Bible, what we can do and what was going on here, what Jesus is addressing is we basically end up using them. We look at it and we decide, hey, these tools, these are a crowbar. That's what we've got. You know what crowbars do? They let you get leverage to break things apart, to open things up, right? And that's what we try to use these for. These things are leverage. They are leverage for me to gain people's approval, right? To gain good for myself from them. And even sometimes, we probably don't say it this way, but from God, extract good from him. And that is not what they are for. So how do we resist this, right? If, that, if that's the problem... But what do we do about it? And if we know that in our flesh, it's very appealing. We love the approval of people. We love glory. It's very, very enticing. What's the answer, right? How do we resist this? How do we stay on guard? How do we beware of this? Well, I mentioned earlier that, that we sometimes hear this, language, this language of religion pitted against relationship, right? Well, that's a false dichotomy, Religion and relationship always go together, right? Religion is inherently relational. Religion is relating to God, essentially, right? The question is what kind of relationship? It's not whether there is one or not. It's not that these things are separate. It's what kind. Is it a relationship of exploitation or edification? Taking advantage of God and others for ourselves, or giving of ourselves to build up 
to build those relationships, to have them grow and to edify and for the good of others? Are we using people? Are we trying to use God? Or are we building others up and longing to commune with him? Right? So think about it. Think about your devotional time, right? Your quiet time, you got your little journal, you got your Bible, you're doing your thing, right? All good. It's great that we have Bibles. It's great that we can do that good stuff. But you can sin during your devotionals. Absolutely you can. Right? When you're doing that time, are you doing it because you've got some sort of weird karmic view that in doing this, if I read my Bible and pray enough, then things are going to go well for me. If I just read my Bible enough, then temptation won't be that bad. Or then, you know, this thing will go, I'll get a good job. I'll get the kind of relationship I want. My marriage will be fine. Right? That's not Christianity. That's Literal, that's karma. So what goes around comes around nonsense. That is not what Christianity is. That is you manipulating God. It's prosperity gospel. So look, I've done this, now you owe me, Lord. You owe relating to me in this particular way. You owe giving me what I want. It may sound very spiritual because of what the things are, but it's the same thing. It's the same thing as, you know, if you pray enough, you'll get a boat. It just looks better on the outside. It's the same thing. It's the same operating principle. Or maybe it's not that. Maybe it's you go and you want to learn and get all this knowledge so that you can feel superior and holier to your brothers and sisters in Christ. Scripture talks about how knowledge can puff up, right? So yeah, I, you know, I read my Bible three hours a day and do all this stuff and so I can, you know, parade that around and feel, feel good about myself, right? You can read your Bible three hours a day and sin the whole time. If you're reading it to use it as a weapon, and something that self-justifies and a tool for your self-righteousness. Or, when you do that, you pick up God's word because you want to know and commune with the God who loves you, the God who gave up his life for you. Right? Are you there to check a box off to win something from him? Are you there because this God loves me and cares for me and knows me because of what he's done for me, and I get the privilege of being in a favorable relationship with him now. Not a relationship of wrath, but a relationship of love. Right? That's what I get to do there. That changes the whole way you think about this. Rather than this being some dutiful checklist thing, like, okay, I checked my Christian box. I've been a, been a good little believer. No! That's not what that is for. It is this incredible gift that you have God's words to you that you can look at and enjoy in that way. So you do it for that. And do you, when you read it, are you thinking about the people in this room? Are you thinking about your brothers and sisters in Christ? The point of me knowing my God better is not for me, not to have knowledge that puffs me up, but so that I can encourage you better. When we are just hanging out and talking and when you walk through things in life, I if I know Christ a little bit better, I can show him to you a little bit more clearly in the ways that I can. One of the worst pieces of advice I got when I went to seminary was that they said, when I, hey, when you become a pastor and you're studying and stuff and you're doing your, getting your sermons ready for church and everything, hey, if you're studying for things for other people, it doesn't really count. You have to do this other stuff that's just for you. It's ludicrous. It was absolutely ludicrous. It was like, if you study selfishly, that would be better and more holy. Like, no! Like, the whole purpose, the whole thing we are called to is to love God and love our neighbor. It's all outward focused. The richest times I have in study is when I am thinking about God and my brothers and sisters. And I'm not just doing it for myself. I'm doing it for them. I'm doing it to know him and to encourage and love them. It's the exact opposite, right? We do these things better when we do it as an expression of love. We do it with each other in mind. And that changes the whole dynamic of how you're going to read your Bible. I don't read my Bible just for me. I read my Bible for you and for you and for you and for you because it lets me love you better and care for you better. It's the same for all of you guys. It's a totally different motivation and way of thinking about how we do these things. So the key, the key thing from this passage that guards us against this hypocrisy, the key thing that we have to notice and remember 
The key thing that leads us into doing this rightly is it's really captured by one word in this whole passage. And that's the word father. It's the word father. It's only come up twice so far in the book of Matthew, both in the Sermon on the Mount earlier. But in these next 18 verses that really kind of make up a section, I think it's in there 16 times, I think, that I counted. That's a lot. And for us as Christians, if you've been around the church at all, hearing God as Father just sounds normal, right? We just, yeah, our Father who art in heaven. We just kind of roll with it, right? But when Jesus is preaching this, you've got to realize that the Jews did not call God Father. They would not have dreamed of doing that. That was way too close a relationship. They got to call him Yahweh. That was their personal name for him, and that was incredible. But they wouldn't even write that out and everything. There was this distance, this space. They called Abraham their father, but they would not dare to call God their father. So just by Jesus using this language, he's communicating something very, very radical about the kingdom of God, right? Like, just by using that terminology over and like, wait a second. The people who are in this kingdom have God not just as their God, but as their father? That's crazy, right? That's, that's, that is wild, and we, we can miss that, and we just skim over it, right? So Jesus is emphasizing God as our Father throughout this section. You're going to hear it over and over again these next few weeks. But that's one of the unique things about this kingdom that Jesus is bringing. All those who are part of this kingdom have God as their Father. They've been adopted into his family. They are co-heirs with Christ himself, Right? And that relationship, right? That relationship, having God as your father starts to change everything. Because what are we looking for? When we're trying to get people's approval, when we're trying to use these things to look righteous, to get people to see us a certain way, what are we after, right? We're, we're trying to find an identity. We're trying to, you know, find something I can hang my hat on, right? Like, this person loves me. This person respects me. We're trying to find something to hold on to. Because we're made to find our identity outside of ourselves. But we're not meant to find it in people. It doesn't work. But that's the closest counterfeit we have to the real thing. Right? So we look for it. We look to find this from people, to find this stability, to find this solidity of who we are. But the place that's supposed to come from is from your Father. It's from God. He's the one who makes you who you are. Right? He puts his name on you. He gives you his DNA by giving you his spirit. He's not ashamed to call you his child. That is the most fundamentally true thing about who you are. You are a son, a daughter of God. God himself is your father. And I think we can miss the full weight of this too culturally because living in the the modern West, we're very individualistic, right? We have a much softer view of the family. And, and much, much more here is based on merit and what you do. But that was not the culture Jesus was in, or even the culture in the Middle East now, right? When I was over there uh, in the military, living and working with the Iraqis, right? There, everything is determined by your family. Right? Everything is determined by who your father was. The work you do is determined by who your father was. Your place in society it's determined by who your father was. Your security and safety is determined by who your father is and who that connects you with. Everything is tied into that. And I remember just sharing the gospel with them and talking to them about it. And the words that Jesus said about, if anyone would follow me, you have to leave father, mother, brother. That meant something totally different to them. Because that meant like I lose my whole life, basically. Right? And so that's the sense in which you've got to think about a father defining your identity when it comes to God, right? Everything about you now, as a Christian, is defined not by what you do, not by what you accomplish, not how much favor you can get from whoever at work or in your neighborhood, but by who he is and who he has made you. And the fact that he has set his affection on you, that's what makes you who you are. That is what defines you. And the identity of, of belonging to a father, to being a child, that is not an identity that you can work for or merit. You, you literally, there's nothing you can do to, be, to become a son of somebody. Like by, you know, physically or when it comes to God, you can't earn that. It's something that you have to be born into or adopted into, and we are both. 
We are born and adopted into this identity, completely apart from anything we do. It is all his work sourced in him. And the fact that we have him as father, of course, means that we are children, right? It points us to our, our weakness and our dependence. Think especially about a young child, right? Like they, everything, depend on their parents for everything. You leave them alone for a few hours and, you know, who knows what's going to happen, right? They're totally dependent. That's what we are, right? And this is a totally different picture of ourselves than what we've been talking about. Before, we're like, all right, I'm going to do these things well enough that people will love me and they'll adore me and I'll look great and I'll feel good about myself on the inside. Totally different picture, right? No, I am weak. I'm dependent. I don't do anything perfectly. I fail all the time. But all those things I was trying to work my way to and get from other people, I've been given as a gift of grace. I've been made a child of the God of the universe because of what he's done, not what I've done. Radically different understanding of who you are. And that is what allows us to engage with these things in a completely different way. When we know that that is what we have in God our Father, we no longer need to extract it from other people. I don't need to get glory out of you. I don't need to get approval out of you. I don't need to find myself in how you think of me. So I am free to love you, to care for you, to give of myself for you. So the religious activities, the religious things, the means of grace that God has given us, they are not tools for you to make a name for yourself. Right? They're not tools for you to make a name of yourself. To do that is a little bit like, it's like building the Tower of Babel with the bread and wine of communion. It doesn't work. You can't do it, and you lose the beauty and glory and wonderful thing that you have when you try to. These things that God gives us to do, these things that he calls us to, they are not things for us to use to strive to be okay, to find a righteousness of our own, to find an identity in the way people think of us. They are the loving gifts of a father who wants to commune with his kids. Right? If I give my son a football, right? I love football, I love my son. I give my son a football. Why am I doing that? What am I expecting from him? Am I giving it to him because I think he's going to make it big and I want him to get a scholarship to Alabama and go make it a pro so I can retire and he can get me a nice house? Is that why I'm giving him a football? No, I'm not, right? I am giving him a football because I already love him and I want to play catch with him. That's why I'm giving him a football. I already love him. I already approve of him. I always will. I don't want anything out of him. I want to enjoy him and commune with him. Our God's a better father than I am, right? If I, as a sinner, love and want to relate to my son like that, how much more does our perfect, holy, loving God want to relate to us like that? When he calls us to pray, he's not up there like, you know, Oh, they, they, that was a run-on sentence. Oh, forgot the comma there. No, that's not what he's doing. He loves you. He made you his. It cost him his son to do it. He loves you. And he wants to know you. When he calls you to pray, he wants to talk to you. He doesn't care if it sounds like babble. Right? That's the most beautiful babble in the world to him because you are his. Because you're his. My son already has the only identity I care about, and that's that he's mine. Right? God is not looking for the new, improved, better version of you, the idealized form that you will be someday. Right? Anything good in you is something he's going to work out anyway. He loves you as you are. He died for you as you are. So these things that he calls us to do, are not things we need to perform for him or for anybody else. They are gifts from a father who loves you. 
and who wants to commune with you. And it's such a sad loss, right, when we take that and we turn it in to this mechanistic thing, right? If I pray hard enough, if I say just the right words, if I do a lot of, oh, man, then, then I'll get what I want out of this. Ah, oh, cheap. It's so cheap compared to what it actually is. I think we see this picture of God, the Father, no place better than in the parable of the prodigal son, right? Um, you guys probably are familiar with it, right? There's a father, he has two sons. His youngest son says, Dad, give me my inheritance now, which is basically saying, Dad, I'd rather be, you be dead and I have your, have your stuff. Um, it's incredibly insulting in their culture. But the father does it. He gives him his half of the inheritance, and the son goes and uh, blows it all, wastes it all, and ends up broke, ends up working in a pigsty, basically eating next to the pigs. That's where he's left. And in the midst of doing that, he has this epiphany while he's there in the mud. He's, hey, you know what? My dad, I remember his servants. And, like, those guys had it way better than I do. All right, so I'll just go home, and maybe he'll hire me. Maybe he'll, maybe he'll let me be a servant. Maybe he can forgive me enough to do that. Luke fifteen seventeen says this. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the father said to him, and the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand, and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. This is just incredible, right? The, the, the son comes home, and he doesn't even get to finish his speech, right? If you read it, he starts saying the exact same thing. He thought through it, right, when he's back in the pig pen. Okay, this is what I'm going to say. I'm going to grovel a little bit. I'm not worthy to be your son. Then I'm going to throw out the servant proposal, right? I've got it all worked out. This is going to be good. So he gets into it. The father doesn't even let him finish. He cuts him off, right? When he says, I am unworthy to be your son, he's about to go into the servant thing. doesn't even get to say it. What does the father do? Immediately starts treating him as a beloved son. Right from the jump, right? Doesn't even let him finish his wallowing. There's no time for that because he loves him so much. He will not take him back as a servant. He won't do it, right? He will only have him as a son, right? And when we use these things that God gives us that he calls us to. Things like prayer, things like fasting and, and giving to the poor. We're going to talk more about them, but when he gives us these things, we tend to use them like a servant, right? If I do this well enough, if I do these things well enough, I'll, I'll get my payday and I'll stay well fed and, and, and that'll be good enough. He doesn't give them to us as a servant. He gives them to us as sons and daughters. He gives them to us as his children. And he delights in you. He gives them to you because he wants to celebrate like that. He wants to enjoy you, right? Because you who are dead has been made alive because of the work of Jesus Christ. And you are his. That's why he gives these things to you. That's why he calls, them to, calls you to them. Right? It is, these are joyful privileges not heavy burdens. So the goal of these religious things is not to make something of yourself, right? Not to become a self-made religious man. No, they are gifts of God to commune with him. Right? The one he's talking about specifically here, the, the privilege of helping somebody in need. When you get to do that, right? When you get to help somebody in need, 
the applause of men or, or the self-congratulations you can give yourself for doing that, they fall so short of, of what you actually get to do in that, which is, you know what it is? You get to be a little bit like dad. Because our father gives to the needy. Right? He loved us when we hated him. He made us alive when we were dead. When we were his enemies, he made us his friends. And so we get these little chances to help those who are weak, who are poor. We get, we get to be a little bit like dad. And that is way better than anything anyone in this world can offer you. Any sense of self-righteousness or accomplishment you can come up with, right? You get to be a little bit like dad. What a gift. What a privilege. You get to be a little bit like that father in that parable. So this passage is a call. A call to not trade the riches of communion with God our Father for the fool's gold of men's applause or of poisonous self-righteousness. When we forget who we are, when we forget who we've been made in Christ, we're tempted to, to try to forge an identity ourselves, to use the good gifts God has given us to, to, to become self-made men and women. When we forget that we are loved and accepted and forgiven in Christ, we will use these good things to try to find counterfeits of those realities. But you can't work your way to sonship. You can't work your way to God as your father. We only have that as a gift. But when you have it as a gift, when, that's really, when you know that's who you are, and it is whether you feel it or not, okay? This is not a subjective, I feel like God loves God loves you. You are his son or daughter, whether you feel it or not. It does not change. It is fixed and set. This is not an emotional thing. It is the same on your good days and your bad days. When you have that, that reality of being his child, it changes everything you do. There's nothing you can do to get it, but once you have it, once that's who you are, it changes and shifts the focus and, and the purpose of, of everything you do. Not just these religious practices and these, these things that look like piety, but everything you do is radically transformed because we live in the favor of our good Father. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for the work of your son that has made what we talked about a reality. We are your sons, your children, your heirs because your only begotten son came, took on flesh, lived the perfect righteous life that we could not and took the sin that we deserved to pay for on himself. We thank you and we rejoice in that and we pray that you would help us to live as the children we are, not as slaves. And we don't honor you in doing that. We end up abusing and misusing your gifts. We end up exploiting those around us rather than loving them. So Lord, remind us through your word this morning of who we are, of what you have made us, of what the things you give us to do, what they are actually for. They are not Tower of Babels we build to heaven, uh, but they are gifts, means of grace for a father who loves his kids. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.